This afternoon too, um, I know many of you have heard about it and know about a very dear friend of ours in the church, uh, Eric Tate, 39 years old, passed away last week and um, uh, with cancer. And uh, so this afternoon there's a celebration of life and it's an incredible um, family, very close to us. Uh, they're actually the longest serving family in the church uh, since 99. They've been with us. We started the church, planted the church in 97, and uh, I could tell a lot about Eric and that and his life, uh, and he truly did live a wonderful life. He's got an amazing family, and to this afternoon, we're going to celebrate that. We'll have um, uh, uh, the, the celebration will be here at 2 o'clock. We'd love you to come. If you'd like to come share that with us and pray for us, because uh, he is very much loved in the community, and there will be many people that I pray that will be impacted by the gospel this afternoon. Thank you so much. And so thinking about Eric this week, um, you know, he was a young guy in his teens, I think, when he joined, and, um, and he did a number of things in the church. He played, some of you guys in the worship team might not know that before we had uh, drummers, we had Eric on the bongos for a while. He bought them and brought them, and uh, him and Lynn were involved in the uh, Sunday school. They run a home group. They, uh, they were always there for us and uh, very good friends. But while I was thinking about it, a few weeks ago, we looked at the Westminster Confession, and uh, I just want to pick up that again, because um, for me, looking back on this time, um, you know, it's a time of reflection, and what, this is what the um, Westminster Confession came up. They were asked the question, they were asking the question, is what is the uh, chief um, end of man? What is the reason for man to be here? Why did God create us? And after many months, it's a, um, there's a short catechism, there's a long one, you can go and read it, it's about 400 years old, and it forms the basis of, of Reform and Protestant um, Christianity. They've been, um, they've been modified for different views on the gospel, but the truth is the truth there. And this is what they came up with, a single statement on the chief end of man, and they said, man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him to ever, forever. That's why God created us. To, he created us for His glory. And so the question we need to ask ourselves, and uh, these are some of the reminders of some of the stuff we've been through, is how do we glorify God? How do we glorify God? And we begin to glorify God when we acknowledge that no matter how good we are, we cannot save ourselves. Many people we'll meet and share the gospel and have, and they'll say, well, I don't need God because I'm a good person. I haven't really done anything wrong. And that's true, and many of them are good people. But sin is sin, and to become a sinner, and to be a sinner and fall short of the glory of God, you only need to have done one sin to make us a sinner. And so whether we've been good or bad, we have fallen short of God's glory. And I've used this as an example. This is a lovely bottle of water that I'm going to drink while I preach. And uh, I, I've just opened it, and I could share it with many of you, or if, if you were thirsty, you may take a sip. But if I did this, 
and put whatever I did in the bottle there. How many of you would drink it now? See, how much spit does it take to make this unclean? And that's what sin is all about. But God had a plan for us to save us, to set us free. And you see, being a good person is an amazing thing, and we all should strive to be good. But being good will never save us. And we see this in Isaiah 42, verse uh, 5 to 8. Well, in fact, I'm going to read from verse 1, I think, today. Isaiah speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says, Here is my servant who I am uphold with my, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will bring justice to all the nations. This is a prophetic word of the coming Messiah. He will not shout out or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. You may be feeling like a bruised reed today. You may be feel that there's just this little flicker of light, but Jesus is there for He will not break it and he will not snuff it out. In faithfulness, he will bring forth justness. He will not falter or be discouraged till he has established justice on earth. And in his teaching, the islands will, uh, will put their hope. This is what the Lord God says, the creator of heaven, who stretches them out, who spreads out the earth with all springs from it, and who gives breath to its people and life to those who walk in it. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. God has called us to live righteous life. And we know that we cannot do that outside of Christ. But he says, not only have I called you, but I will take you by your hand. I will walk you through the trials and tribulations. I will walk you through life. We know the amazing story of life that David, um, so, um, uh, that David penned in Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He says, I will keep you and make you to be a covenant for the people and a light to the Gentiles. This is what he'll do, to open the eyes of the blind, to free captives from prison, and to release from dungeon those who are in darkness. I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not yield my glory to another or my praise to idols. idols." Jesus says in this that he set the captives free. And this is the amazing thing about heaven. It will be full with former captives. All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We have all been slaves to sin, but we have been redeemed, those who know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, through the blood of Jesus. And Peter writes of this in 1 Peter 1, uh, verse 18 to 21. He says this, for you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed or saved from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but it was with the precious blood of Jesus, a lamb without blemish or defect, the son of God who died to take away the sin of the world. And he was chosen before the creation of the world but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him you believe in God, 
who raised him from the dead and glorified him so that your faith and your hope is not in this world, is not in our, our, our materialism, but in God alone. You see, because of the sacrifice of Jesus, the righteousness of God became our righteousness. Just think about that. Jesus took the sin of the world. And I don't know where you are today, and I don't know where uh, you're sitting with God, and I felt God say that he wants to set us free from guilt and condemnation today. But the battle we have is not in the finished work of the cross. The battle that we wage is in our minds. And we need to renew our minds by understanding what Jesus Christ did through the washing of the word over us. You see, because of Jesus, this is the amazing thing. God, the Father in heaven, because of him, became our Father. God became our Father. Think about that through Jesus Christ. When Jesus deport, uh, taught the disciples how to pray, how did he start that? That wasn't the Lord's prayer. That was the disciples' prayer that Jesus taught them to pray. It was for us to pray. And he starts with this. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. We are part of the family of God. God has sent his son to reconcile us to him. And because of Jesus, we who were enemies of God have now peace with God through the Holy Spirit. Colossians 2, 19 to 20 tells us this, that God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and, th uh, uh, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, and by making peace with his blood on the cross. There's no other way for us to get saved. There's no other way for us to be free from guilt and condemnation. And if we have two choices in this world, and there's two voices that will speak to us, the soft voice of the Holy Spirit, who tells us when we're in trouble and when we're in trials or when we've fallen, to run to Jesus. And the enemy, who tells us to run away. If you want to know the voice of God, that's it. If you fall, have fallen or done things that aren't uh, pleasing to God, Run to God and allow him to set you free. You see, this world needs a church that understands what Christ has done, done in their lives, but also who they are in Christ. That our identity is not in what we do, but in who we are. We are children of God. We're going to see a little bit of Solomon's life at the end of this, how, how he unfortunately took to the end of his life to realize that his hope, he had put his hope and spent his time on things of no eternal value. You see, this is the thing, Genesis 1:26 tells us to 27, that God created us in his image. And therefore, because we are created in his image, true peace Love, joy, true compassion, true life can never be found outside of God. 
We're looking for love often in all the wrong places. No matter how hard we try to love God in our own strength, it's impossible for us, but not impossible for God. For God said in Romans chapter 5 that he pours out his love into our hearts by his spirit. We don't earn his love. We cannot. We would cheapen his love if we could earn it. If we could achieve his love in our own strength, we would cheapen it. But we receive it by faith through grace. And I think God is wanting to bring us back to that fresh revelation of that. Because he has work for us to do. And time is short. I mentioned this last week again, and it's something I've mentioned before. That we all have a birth date and we all have a death date. In between that, there's a little dash. And God expects us and wants us and empowers us to live that dash for him. That we bring him glory and honor and praise. You see, you speak, see King Solomon. This is going to be one of the shortest preaches I've preached because I really feel God wants to do something in our hearts. God wants to set us free from this treadmill of trying in our own strength and our own ability to be good. You know why Jesus speaks about having a first love relationship? We see that in the book of Revelations chapter, uh, uh, chapter 2. He speaks to the church in Ephesus and he says this. You're doing all of this stuff right. You're an amazing church. You, you know theology. You've tested false prophets and, and, and apostles. And you've, um, you understand the word of God. You love God. You care for God. But I have this against you. You have forsaken your first love. You have fallen out of love with me. And why is that so important? Because we worship, and spend our time on what we love. Where we spend our time is what we love. And when we fall in love with Jesus, we don't obey him because we have to. We begin to obey him because we want to. It's like any first love relationship. You meet somebody and you fall in love with them, and you're doing your very best to please them and honor them. And if we're not careful, just like in physical relationships, in relationships with Jesus, we can drift away and fall out of love, and it becomes a mechanical thing. See, Christianity was never meant to be an event. Christianity and worship and glorifying God was never meant to be coming on a Sunday and singing a few songs. This is all important because this is where we're trained and equipped and together we can encourage one another. And Hebrews says that we must not neglect the gathering of the saints. But so often Christianity has become a tradition that we do on a Sunday and the rest of the week we barely consider him. And Jesus wants to win back our hearts. Jesus wants to win back our hearts. He is not angry with us. He is simply longing for us, loving, longing for this relationship with him. 
And we see this in the life of King Solomon. Ecclesiastes is quite a book, but it's actually the story of Solomon's life and how it began and ended. You see, Solomon became the richest man in the world. He was the Bill Gates of the day and tried living his life for his own pleasure and fulfillment. I was thinking about that. We all would like more riches and so on. I think it's not God wants to bless us so we can be a blessing. But what do you buy somebody that has everything? How do you surprise them? A bigger yacht? (laughs) An island, a planet? I don't know. I don't know how you do that. I must, and I was wondering that at Solomon, at the end of his life, who who was given so much and had so much and and fame and fortune and and wisdom and all of this was given so much. And at the end of his his life, he writes this, Beginning of the book of Ecclesiastes, verse 1 to 3. The words of the teacher, son of David, king of Jerusalem. Meaningless, meaningless. And if you've got the King James, vanity of vanities, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. What do people gain from all their labors? at which they told under the sun. He goes on to speak of his life and his riches. But this is an amazing thing. In the last chapter, he finishes it like this. He concludes this in his life. He says this in 12 verse 13 and 14. Now all has been heard, and here is the conclusion on the matter. At the end of my life, of all of the stuff I had, this is the conclusion. And this is what he concludes. Fear God and keep his commands, for this is the duty of all mankind. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every heaven thing, whether good or evil. You see, church, we glorify God and we enjoy him forever by this, by living a life in relationship and faithful service to him, by living for the benefit of others. The agape love of God, by living a life of love, the undeserved, unmerited, unconditional love of God. And God says, as I've loved you, so you must love others unconditionally. And the ultra, um, the ultra, the sorry, I've had a few many <laughs> flu tablets this morning. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> I'll be sneezing all over the place. And then, but the ultimate thing we can do for God is to represent Him in both word and deed to act against our own best interests, to put others above ourselves, 
And that's what God talks about when he talks about his love. Love is a place where we come when we put others' interests above ourselves. We see that in the military stories. We see young men. No interest of being there other than wanting to save the nation. Laying down their lives for each other. We glorify God by representing him well in word and deed. These are things we need to consider. I've been looking at this all week within the context of Eric and this afternoon and so on. But that's how we represent God. We are Christ's ambassadors. And the way we conduct ourselves has a direct bearing on other people's lives. In our workplace, in the church. If we can't get along in the church, if we can't love everybody unconditionally in the church, how are we going to do it out there? See, this is a training ground. This is where God brings us to, to be loved, forgiven, and accepted. And my heart for Oceanside is not that we become a, a large church, but my heart for Oceanside is that we will be a people who love God above all house and love each other and our neighbors as ourselves. I think I've heard that somewhere. It's so simple. It's so simple. And when we learn to do that, act against our own best interests, we begin to impact the world and people's lives. You see, we do it by, interest, uh, by word and deed. We honor God by being obedient to his word. This word is timeless. I know culture is wanting to adapt to the word of, the word of God to culture. But either the culture has preeminence of the word or the word has preeminence over culture. It can't be both. And we serve a timeless God who spoke thousands of years ago in the book through Jesus Christ of the end times and what it would be like. So he's not shocked about what's coming on here. He's not shocked that men, time will come, Paul wrote, that men will not put up with sound doctrine, but instead to suit the itching words, will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what the itching word, um, ears want to hear. But you, Timothy, keep your head in all situations. And this word is relevant. This is word is what we live by. This is what we honor. And the two things you'll hear in this church always and often and often is that we love Jesus and we love the word. Our mission statement is this, to know Jesus and to make him known. Our songs are about Jesus. Our lives need to be about Jesus. So we need to study the Word. We need to know the Word. And there are parts of the Word that we'll never uh, fully understand. But we're not God. And if I say to God, I don't understand what's going on, in a sense I'm saying, God, I have the same intellectual <laughs> level as you. But God shows us by faith. 
And we walk by faith and not by sight through these things. You see, we do it by using our God-given gifts and talents and resources, no how big or small to glorify God. Last week I spoke about a stick, a stone, and a worship team. How God delivered Israel through Moses with the staff in his hand. How God used David with one pebble to win a, a victory and save Israel. And Jehoshaphat, a worship team. You see, God is not wanting our ability. He doesn't even want, need our finances then. It's our availability. It's using what we have. How can we make a difference? How can we make a difference in one person's life? How can we make a difference in the person at our work who may also be going through grief and a trial of a death in the family, who may also be going through troubles and that? We don't make a difference by, by lecturing them. We make a difference by loving them, by caring for them, by letting them know that we love them and we love Jesus. And Jesus said this, the defining factor of his church is simply this. It's not great buildings. It's not even great worship teams or mediocre preaching. The defining factor of the Lord Jesus Christ, that the church he's coming to will be a church that loves one another as Jesus loved us. By this shall all men know. If the church was going to be saved through preaching, teaching, worship, and buildings, especially in North America, it should be saved, if the world was sorry, it should be saved a hundred times over. But people want to know that they are loved and cared for. People want to know that we, we genuinely have interest in them. And when they begin to feel that, they catch what we have and not what we say. Often the church is saying things what they don't have. And how many of you know, if I sneeze on somebody, you're going to get what I have, even if I say I don't have it. That's how it works. And so it's through this as a community, and this is a loving community. And what I would love us to do, we're going to worship God, but afterwards, I'm praying over the next few weeks as people begin to come back, that we get to know each other, get to love each other, that we can spend time here together meeting new people. And people in the church, I'm asking you, our people, to reach out beyond your circles. Jesus himself said that if there's a hundred sheep here and one, one goes missing, I'm going to leave the hundred and find the one. And even today, there are ones that need love and that need compassion and they need a prayer and need a hand. Even today, people have come here saying, God, do you love me? I told the story and this young man died. We had two people uh, connected to the church, um, pass away in one week, both under 40 years old. And the second young man, who's no longer in our church, 
when he joined this church, and I know that he knew what to do. He had walked away from God, but I know and I know that before he passed away, he knew God, and he would have made right with God. But he came into my office once, very angry, just moved here. He saw the sign, we were in another building, and he came in, and he just walked in, that kind of guy, and he came into my office, and he just blasted me, how bad the church has, the church this, the church this, the church that, he started telling me things that he had gone through in his life in church, and we hear stories of that all over the show these days, and all I could say to him at the end of that was this. I said, listen, I hope we're not like that. And if you could come this Sunday and bring your wife, I pray that you would have a different experience to that. And he left there in a huff. I didn't know whether he would come back. But he came back with his wife. And, I, and this I heard at the dedication of his child two years later. I asked him to share. He came with his wife. And at the dedication, he said, you know why I'm here today? He says, I went to church that day, and I told my wife, if somebody does not reach out to me, I will never go back. And he was there that went through the service. I didn't even see him there, but he was about to walk out the door at the Roxy Cinema where we used to meet. And Bisla, I can see her right there right now, and Yomi ran after him. Or grabbed him as he went past. He, and Bisela said, hey, you're new here. What are you doing for lunch? And invited them to lunch. And he said, that's why I'm here. It wasn't my preaching. It wasn't the worship. It was somebody that reached out. Jesus tells us it's as little as a cup of water. You see, a cup of water, a coffee with somebody creates con Connection. And our lifestyle creates an atmosphere where the Holy Spirit can soften hearts. Because we sow seed, we cannot save people, but we sow seeds. And as we sow that seed, we want, we pray through the Holy Spirit that that heart is softened enough so that it can at least take a root. And we don't go next week and uh, dig the seed up. But by acts of love and kindness, Paul says, I planted the seed in your hearts, Church of Corinth. But I went on, and then this man named Apollos came, and he watered the seed. How did he water it? Yes, he taught them, and he prayed for them. But I guarantee you, he loved them and laid his life down for them. And the rain of the Holy Spirit came and watered that seed, and it began to germinate, and God made it grow. And I've met, uh, and we're talking a lot about death today because it's been quite a week. But I've met with people through the church, loved ones of people, who are on their deathbed in palliative care or within months of passing away gave their heart to the Lord Jesus Christ. And often when I speak to them, I remember Mr. McNabb, he was one of our counselors here, uh, was in the newspaper, said um, he's, going, he's got cancer, he's an old man, and Johan came to me, Johan von Rensburg said, can we go and pray for him? I said, do you know him? He said, I don't know, but I feel we need to pray for him. 
So you hung um, up somehow, and we went there. And we sat with this man, and he was in this chair, and he was sitting there, and um, he was telling us his life story, because that's what people do, like Solomon, <laughs> what he had done, where he had been, and all of that. And after a while, I said to him, so can I just ask you a question? And I think it was just like, I'm trying to remember it, what I said, but I said, if you die today, do you know where you're going? Do you know Lord Jesus Christ? And he looked at me, and he said something like this. He says, you know, he's in his 70s or 80s. You know, when I was 10 or 11, I went to a church camp. And it was like God reminded him. And he said, I made a, I, I made a decision for Jesus. But I never, ever went back. And I've lived this life and so on. And I was thinking of that camp leader with all these out-of-control kids, sharing the gospel, nobody seems to be listening, running amok, going home and say, God, is this worth it? But he planted a seed. And I'm sure along the way, people in his life, if we had time and asked him, would have people that would put a little bit of water on that seed. And literally days before he died, he rededicated his life to the Lord Jesus Christ. He went to palliative care and he had his whole family there from all over, big family in the, in the room. And he asked me, will I pray for his family? And he told them what he had done. Now nobody put their hand up there. And we prayed and the presence of God was there. Nobody put their hand up but seed was sown and water was given. And so church, for us, as we go into this future, we don't know the length or the breadth of our time. And this is not a scary thing, but it's a sobering thing. But I do know this, and I've known Eric. He wasn't in the front uh, around here, but in business and in the community and in his life, he represented God. And spending time with that family this week and just seeing the peace of God upon them has been absolutely amazing. 